0: has been widely reported that having flown into space, he is now funding a project that will look at reversing the aging process. And to quote one headline, Jeff, Jeff Bezos funds the quest for eternal life. It seems that Bezos, who is 57 years old, has reflected on the fact that life on Earth does not go on forever. But being reportedly one of the wealthiest men in the world, he wants more time to enjoy his prosperity. So he's making a multi-million dollar investment in an age reversal firm he hopes to reverse the aging process and even result in immortality. The Bible says there are some non-negotiable realities. One is that death is inevitable. We are all simply going to live long enough to die. The second one is that eternal life is available. And the third one is that this gift of eternal life is for both those who are filthy rich and the dirt poor and everyone in between. Our text this morning affirms that. It's one of the the great declarations of the full humanity, full deity of the person of Christ and the fact that his death was by eternal divine design follow as I read chapter 2 of Hebrews starting in verse 10 for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist that is the father in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation that is the son perfect through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified set apart as for holy service are all by one source, that is the Holy Spirit. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Remember, again, from last week, that is 21 verses into the psalm that is cited on the cross. In the darkest of hours, he says of this, I will declare the greatness of your name to my brothers. And even in the dark, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in you. Again, from Isaiah 8. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Today's text. Since therefore, and whenever we have a therefore, we pause and ask, what is it therefore? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Don't you like that word? Propitiation. I think you're going to add that to your vocabulary. It had happened to us a couple of days ago, as you know, we live up north and uh, we were, we were teaching Meredith's dog how to run alongside a bicycle, and so we were headed over to our son's house, and the neighbor lady's uh, twice as big black dog got off the leash and came running across and bit Kenai, and it was quite a scene, to say the least. She was embarrassed. She disappeared and, and came back. She didn't say anything, didn't apologize or anything. And Linda said, I would have thought she would have said, Are you guys okay? And is there anything I can do? And I said, you know, the word that fits right there is propitiation. And that's how she looked at me, too. This is like to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I, I think you are starting to understand that that might be a key thing in this text. Or because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted I'm going to outline this in four frames first of all his incarnation is in verse 14 since therefore the children share the word share here means since his children and he picks that up from chapter 8 verse 18 of Isaiah which is cited right above since Therefore, in other words, we can't just lift these verses out and study them by themselves, but we have to look at them in the context. What has he been talking about? That Jesus is the final authoritative revelation and word from God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. That one became flesh and lived among us. He is telling us that as a result of that, those who were once enemies of God have now not only been made citizens of the kingdom, as we talked last week, but another step further. They have been welcomed as children at the Father's dining room table. Behold, I and the children God has given to me, since therefore those children share in flesh and blood. The word flesh and blood has to do with humanity. It's not used often in the Scripture, but it is clearly a definition. We describe human beings as having both flesh and blood. It became necessary that he himself likewise, in the same way as the ones that he came to redeem are human beings and flesh, it became absolutely essential that he also become a human being in flesh and blood. But then he throws in the word, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, so to share means that they have these things in common. To partake simply means to take on what is not natural to you, so Jesus was not naturally flesh and blood, he's spirit, he's your eternal creator God, but he took on himself that which was not common to him, that is humanity, flesh and blood. In order that, and, and uh, again, these are some, I was talking to, to, to Drummer Daryl this morning about how you spend all week on a passage and then somehow on Sunday morning, duh, where was that when I needed it? And suddenly there was a connection. Turn to the right in your Bible or turn on your screen to Second Peter chapter one. Notice verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through those, through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So he took on what was not natural to him, that is flesh and blood, so that you and I can take on what is not natural to us, that is the divine nature. That's what it means to be dedicated, sanctified, set apart. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, that is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, and the Word, God, became flesh and He tabernacled, or He dwelt is the Word. He pitched His tent among us so that we could behold His glory. We could study and scrutinize His glory in 60 years later, the 90-some-year-old John reflects back and says, And when we studied him closely, we beheld his glory that was as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He puts those two together. Now, notice the order is spiritually inspired. He is full of grace without compromising truth. We have a tendency to reverse those. He was full of truth, believe it or not. And if you believe that, then he'll shower you with a little bit of grace. But they studied and they said, what we saw is Jesus as flesh among us, living amongst sinful people who despised him, hated him, rejected him, and ultimately crucified him. And all we saw of him was he was so gracious to his enemies. And he did it without ever compromising the truth and so once somebody had given him the Heisman they stiff-armed him then they discovered that he is uncompromising in truth but 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 up until the point where they rejected his offer he overwhelmed them with grace that's what he's talking about that word became flesh and pitched his tent in the midst of us so that we could study him closely so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil. The death of death was the death of Jesus. Had it not been for his death, death would have continued to reign as a tyrant over humanity. I mean, Little Cruz's death this week, and though we weren't there at a memorial service yesterday, what what is a What is the sense of a preschooler dying? We live in a fallen world. We're all going to die. Physical death is inevitable. But there is also the possibility of eternal life. Why is that? Because through his death, he would destroy the power of the one who has the authority or the power of death, that is, the devil. The, the, the longer you live and the, and the more you scrutinize the world that's around us, you, you begin to realize that, that there is, in reality, a cosmic conflict constantly taking place. We've read the last chapter, so we know that in the end, we win. There's, there's no suspense on that man's number one enemy is death he says that in first corinthians 15. but because jesus both died was buried and rose from the dead man's last great enemy death does not get the last word he destroyed his power when you're in a cosmic conflict in order to win against your enemy you have to disarm them of their number one weapon satan's number one weapon was death he held that fear over our heads continually we we were were like Jeff Bezos We're, we're looking for a way not to die why is that? because apart from a relationship to Jesus Christ the only heaven you're ever going to experience is the one you're living in right now but in Jesus Christ the only hell you're ever going to experience is the hell that you're living in right now If Jesus was going to defeat his number one enemy, he had to take from the number one enemy his number one weapon, which was death. And so he came in order to do that. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, says that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus' number one weapon, countering his number one weapon, the free gift of God is eternal life. So you have the threat of death, and the promise of eternal life in conflict, who's going to win? The one that disarms the other. So he came to do that. And so you read this text that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And then, unless you have any question about that, he says, that's the devil. It raises the question, does Satan have sovereign control over who lives and who dies? And the answer to that is No. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Colossians chapter 2, verse and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. When they had stirred the enemies of Jesus, those that only knew him as being gracious and kind and giving, when they stirred them up to crucify him, when they took his lifeless body off of the cross on that Friday, right before sundown, and they laid him in a brand new tomb. For three days, the devil and his servants danced on his grave. They thought they'd won. Only to find out on Sunday that he didn't roll the stone away to get out of the grave. They rolled the stone away to prove he was no longer there. He publicly put them to open shame. And so now that even the guards who were sleeping on the job go running to the city and report what happened. They said, we won't tell people that. We're going to give you this much money and you're not going to take your lives and your freedom away from you. Just tell them that his disciples came and stole them. Why? Because they found out that he who gives eternal life has taken control of the one great enemy weapon that was held over man. John, first John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It says here that he is the one who has the power of death. Does he really have the power of death? The scriptures tell us that only God has the authority of life and death. I, I cite Deuteronomy 32 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no other God beside me. I kill. And I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Or the story of Job, when Job comes to God and God says to him, he says, where have you been? And he says, well, I've been, I've been traveling through and fro, which means that, he says, according to 1 Peter, he's a roaring lion seeking those who can find him. He says to Satan, he says, so what have you been doing? And he says, you know, your servant Job. The only reason he serves you is because he has Jeff Bezos' kind of wealth. You take that stuff away from him and he'll curse you just like everybody else. And God said, okay, take it away. And he took everything the man had except his wife. Took his ten children, his servants, his possessions and everything. And he still didn't, though he slay me, yet I will not cease serving him. So he's going back to him and he says, well, make it a little. Take his health away from him. And God's answer to him was, that you have opportunity. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So even though he has the authority of death, he couldn't take the life of Job because God didn't give him permission. Or Psalm 90, verse 3, You return man to dust, and you say, Return, O children of man. Revelation 1, 18. Fear not, I am the first, I am the last, I am the living one. I died, behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. So how is it then that the writer to the Hebrews says that he is the one, the devil, who has the power of death? And it is simply this. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan is a murderer and he has been from the beginning. Here's where Satan has the authority of death. Genesis chapter 2, God creates this absolutely kind of a Martha Stewart dream location. And he puts Adam and Eve there. And he says, everything that's here, you can eat. Enjoy it. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. In the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes along. Adam's chilling in the garden. He's listening, he's not leading. And Satan says to the woman, Did God really say? That if you eat of that tree, you don't understand. If, if you eat of that tree, you're going to be like God. You will understand the difference between good and evil. And she, being the first legalist in biblical history, adding to what the scripture says. So, well, God said that we should not eat it or touch it. Because she, she knew if she touched it, she was a goner. And they ate anyway. They didn't physically die at that moment, but they were driven out of the garden. Animals died, blood was shed in the garden. You see, this is the way that Satan masters us with death. That is, he entices us to commit the sins that separate us from God. You see, the the problem with Jeff Bezos and his team of the world is that we, we somehow believe that the greatest thing to fear is physical death. But Jesus said that what we ought to fear in Matthew is don't fear those who can kill the body, fear the one who can kill both the body and the soul. You see, there is a second death that must be feared, and that's what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. They were se- death is separation in the physical realm; it's the separation of the spirit from the human body in the spiritual realm. It is the separation of the sinner from a holy God to creator, they experienced death. And at that point, the wages of sin became death. Satan has us bound by that because he entices us to sin, which then brings about the consequence, the penalty of which is death. But then in verse 15, here's the encouragement. So, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is The devil and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's talking about the fear of death. Notice, fear is the thing that manipulates humanity over and over. I I find it interesting. I, I, I took into concordance and tried to run through all the times that the scriptures say, fear not, fear not, do not be afraid as one uh, counter said, there are 365, that's an interesting number, isn't it, declarations that you are not to be afraid, fear not. Here, he says, we live in fear. That's, fear is that uh, unexplainable angst of mind and soul that that rushes upon you to tell you that there is something that is dangerous, out of your control, potentially hazardous, or uncomfortable. It's, it's first of all, an emotion. You you, you, you don't have control over, you know, don't be afraid. It's like, this is Halloween time and haunted houses and all that thing. You, you can say to somebody, don't be afraid. And it's, as soon as you convince them that they are in control, or rather they have the emotion of, fear or not one of the grandkids hides behind a bedroom door in the dark and scares the peewadens out of you and you go you don't have control of fear he's saying in this case he says satan controlled us he made us slaves through the fear of death so that's why there has to be a statement in the scripture fear not do not be afraid for every day of the year simply because it is the paralyzing slave binding control satan has upon us in this case it's the fear of the grave, it's the fear of death. Isaiah 44, over and over in the Old Testament, God says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his redeemer, he's the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who's like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Linda's been reading through Isaiah and Jeremiah and commenting over and over on how many times the children of Israel put their confidence and security in gods that were made with men's hands and i love the one in isaiah 40 it's if you're too poor to get a a goldsmith or something to make you an idol that's really presentable to the neighbors just find a carpenter that can cut a straight line so when the grandkids are running across the living room floor it doesn't totter and fall over he says so i am the first i am the last besides me there's no god who's like me if he's really a god let him tell it, let him declare and set before me since I appointed an ancient people. let them declare what 's going to come and what will happen. You, because I 'm your God, fear not, don't be afraid. Have I not told you that from old and declared this is not the consistent message on this side? of Eden been that in you trust when you hide when he becomes your refuge when he becomes your rock as he repeats over and over haven't I not told you over and over you are my witnesses is there a God besides me there is no rock I know of no other therefore when you're anchored to him when you're sheltered in him as your refuge when your faith and trust is in this living God alone, 365 applications of fear not. Don't be afraid. See, the fear of death, as I said before, is not in necessarily this physical death. The reality is is that all of us know that the Genesis 5 march to the cemetery has been repeated over and over again and over again. In the last three years, last two years, Linda and I have lost three of our parents. They lived, they had us, they had a great life, and they died. That's the story of Genesis 5. That's the story of the scriptures. Everybody knows they're going to die. What they don't know, what's what's on the other side of the grave? Jesus' answer to that is simply, one of the old-time preachers put it this way, They are those who are born once, and they will die twice. But there are those who are born twice, and they only fear dying once. You must be born again. To remove the fear of the grave, one who knew both sides of the grave came alive from the dead, and said, if you trust in me, fear not. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will not fear evil. Why? Because we know that when you go through the valley of death, he takes the flock, he takes the herd, he takes the sheep through the dark and scary valley so that he can take them to the green pastures and the crystal clear water." For that reason, because we know what's on the other side of the grave, he has arrested the weapon that Satan uses against us. We can have peace even in the storm. Propitiation, my word, verse 17. Certainly, it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham we won't spend much time there but it's going to come up over and over again when when he talks here about the offspring remember the title of our book is to the Hebrews these are Jewish people that have recognized that Christ is the Messiah he fulfills the prophecies and principles of the old and as I said before he's writing to those who have believed that staked their future their life on it but it's harder than they thought it was going to be They're struggling to hang on, as it were, to their faith. So he's reminding them again that you chose wisely. Jesus is better than anything else that is offered. And then he's also writing to those who have intellectually agreed, yes, you can line the Old Testament up and it all points to Jesus. I get it. Will you submit your heart and your life to that? Not really. The cost is too high. And he's reminding them that if you reject this Christ, where else are you going to go? What are your other options? lifeless gods and idols? And then the third, who said, I've never understood that before. But it it seems like these people have found a reason to live. It It seems like they have discovered something that I don't have, and so he writes to them. But he reminds them that it is not, he didn't send a savior for the angels. Thousands of angels followed Lucifer in Isaiah 14, in his rebellion against God, but he did not send a savior for angels, but rather, as he says here, for the offspring of Abraham. He sent a redeemer, a rescuer for you Jews who thought that your rescue was found in obedience to the law, but you found out that you were impotent to fulfill the law, so he sent one to rescue you. And it's also, I think, according to Galatians, he helps the offspring of Abraham, that is, who are the children of Abraham by faith. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Glason says, you are the children of Abraham if you by faith believe that same God, that same message. So he sends a rescuer, verse 17, to therefore again. He had to be made like his brothers in every aspect, in every way he had to be like them. Jesus, when he was born, I love the Christmas picture, when Jesus was born, they took this pudgy little baby boy and they wrapped him with claws so he couldn't move. But under that, under that body wrap, which is rather... Picturesque of what they did to him when he died, isn't it? And they laid him in a borrowed place. But under there were little pudgy pink hands that were at the same time sustaining the movement of all of the universe. It's an amazing thing. He had to be like his brothers in every respect. So Luke chapter 4 says when Jesus had stayed in the big city, talking to the PhDs of theology, asking them really good questions and all, and his mom and dad look for him for three days and finally find him there, and she says, she embarrasses him in front of all these, he says, son, didn't you know that we'd be worried about you? And he says, mom, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And he went home with them. And it closes out by saying, and he grew in wisdom, that is, understanding of the application of truth and he grew in stature so he his brothers were tired of getting hand-me-down clothes from Jesus but you know they were unstained as it were by sin and I thought sin to, that he kept outgrowing his clothing just like every other but he also grew socially in favor he grew spiritually in favor with God and with man he He had to go to Hebrew Awana to learn the very verses that his own breath had spoken into existence. This is is the craziest thing. He had to become like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. There's a whole sermon into that. First of all, by his own life experience, he developed a heart of compassion, understanding and care. That's a, he became a merciful, that is, his relationship toward sinful humanity, flesh and blood, those who live in a real world and struggle there. And he was a faithful high priest, that is his relationship toward God. So he, he cared, he felt the burdens and the needs, he experienced the struggles of being totally human in a fallen world. At the same time, he maintained the right spirit toward his father so that he could be a high priest to God. The high priest, there's a whole sermon in there, but you remember that when they came out of the land of captivity and Moses took a sharp right and they went down to Mount Sinai and God met him there and he gave him the law and the blueprint for the tabernacle and part of the law was that God was going to have them build a a place, a meeting place in the middle of the camp and God would meet them there. But God wouldn't just be out there in the, in the garden, you know, in the lawn. There was a barrier created. So you remember that, that tent had two rooms in it. It had a courtyard that was fenced up so high that the people living outside it couldn't see into it. There was no black aluminum fencing like that. But it was a privacy fence all the way around it. And then inside there were like altars where they would kill animals and sacrifice them. And there were washing basins where they could, you know, ritualistically wash themselves. And then every day a priest would go into the holy place and there he would, once a week, would change out the table of showbread, put fresh uh, manna there, and he he would add oil to the light that burned in front of the curtain. But there was this super thick, gorgeous tapestry curtain behind which was a room called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies there was only one piece of furniture. And that piece of furniture was the Ark of the Covenant. You probably know it from movies called The Raiders or whatever. And on each side of it was a golden replication of the cherubim that guarded the gate going back into the garden. The top of it, the lid, was called the mercy seat. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would call the entire nation of Israel together and they would bring two selected goats. They would roll the dice or cast the lots or whatever. And one of them would be the scapegoat and the other one would be the sin goat. And then the high priest, having first of all begun way before sunup, offering sacrifices for his own sin because he was fully flesh and blood like they, but he also had a nature like theirs in that he was a sinful man. And he himself had broken the laws of God throughout the year. But this is the one glorious day of the year and he gets up early, probably didn't sleep for like three days leading up to it. And and he, 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 he washes himself, he changes his garments, he sacrifices the animals for his own sin, puts the blood on the altar, and the aroma rises to the nostrils of God. And then the people gather, and they bring the goats, and he takes the scapegoat, and he lays his hand on the head of the scapegoat. And with a loud voice, he declares the sins of the people. What an uncomfortable worship service that must have been. He goes down through the sins, the list of the law. Joe leans back and says to Mary, "Yeah, Fred broke that one last week. This was this scapegoats for him. Name another one. And they go, yeah, that was, that was Joe. I I remember when Joe committed that sin. In fact, I remember when, when Joe tried to kind of sneak through the camp and bring his lamb offering to cover that sin. I, I I actually can't believe his wife stayed with him, after all that. And then all of a sudden he comes to your sin. It's like, and then they would." One of the priests would lead the scapegoat out into the wilderness and release it to carry their sins away. The other one wasn't nearly that lucky. I mean, this one went out to, to try to survive with all the wild beasts and everything. But the other one, they slit its throat. And they caught the blood, and they offered it on the altar. And then one day a year, the high priest with bells on his robe so they could determine whether God had accepted them or not, would go behind, you would go into the holy place, and then behind that curtain to the Holy of Holies. And there was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and the priest. And he would sprinkle the blood. And if God accepted the sacrifice, the bells on his robe kept jingling and he would make his way out. You see, the problem with those priests is that Aaron was the first one. Then two of his sons brought strange fire, and God made crispy critters out of them right at the gate of the worship center and told their father, don't grieve their death. They rebelled against God. And generation after generation, another high priest was raised up. Until finally the high priesthood had gotten so perverted that in the day of Jesus, Caiaphas the high priest, he was, it was more of a political influence office. He wasn't even rightfully the high priest his son-in-law was, but he paid enough, he bought enough favor that he would do it. We need a priest who doesn't die. We need a priest that can serve forever. And we need a priest who doesn't have to start today by washing his garments and offering sacrifices for his own sins So that he can be qualified to bring the sacrifices of the sinful people before a holy God. In order for him to be that priest, he had to be a man just like everybody else. And in order to be an understanding one, most high priests got pretty callous after a while. People would come to them and confess their sin and they were just like tempted to go up. Just let me tell you what you're going to say next. I've heard this story so many times. They just became callous and insensitive. But Jesus never did. By experiencing everything that fallen humanity experienced, he developed a heart of compassion. But his compassion never caused him to explain away, redefine sin. So he was also faithful to God. 1 Samuel 2.35, God said, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. You remember what happened on the day that this high priest, the amazing thing about this high priest is that he is both the priest and the sacrifice. So when that high priest offered up the sacrifice, that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies tore from the top to the bottom could only imagine the serving priest that went in to replace or to add to the oil on the burning lamp and walked in. I don't think I'm supposed to see that. He's totally like us, and yet it's totally not like us. He, he was flesh and blood, and he was tempted in every way like we are, but he never fell into sin so that he could make propitiation for his people. So I looked up the definition Definitions are very helpful. The definition was the action of propitiating. Well, that really explained it to me. Or to appease. It simply means to avert the wrath of God by bringing an offering of a gift. It's turning away the wrath of God as the just judgment. Our sin rightfully deserves His burning anger, His wrath by God's provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It wasn't something that man schemed up. This was God's plan. He did it in order to propitiate himself for our sins. It's, it's the lady with the big black dog that, that should have come and said, is there anything that I can do? That's what the sinner says. Is there anything that I can do. I have offended you. I've sinned against you. Is there anything I can do? And God says, I got this one. I'll handle this for you. So, a bunch of principles. Man does not craft a strategy to manipulate or to placate the God they have offended by bringing a sacrifice of their own choosing. But in love, God provides to and for us precisely what his own justice demands so that his righteous wrath is addressed and His mercy to us is just. God found a way to forgive the guilty without compromising his holy character. Jesus on the cross is not trying to get his Father to love us. Jesus is on the cross because his Father has loved us from the foundation of the world. His death means our sins can be forgiven and we can be fully reconciled To God. This principle is going to show up over and over in the next 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. In the Bible, God's wrath is about his righteousness, his non-compromising standard of right. It's about his holiness, his unstained, set-apart, sacredness, separation, and about his justice. God could not simply sweep our offenses under the rug without compromising his character. Number four, in the Bible, God is always the one who provides the sacrifice needed for sins. So, teaching Kenai to run beside the bicycle. If we were more godlike, we would have gone to the neighbor's door and said, Ma'am, that must have been a very uncomfortable situation for you. Is there anything we can do to make it right? That's divine propitiation. In the Bible, the required payment for sins involves the substitute sacrifice, the death of an innocent in the place of the guilty. Romans 5, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. 1 John chapter 4, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, the appeasement of the Father's wrath against our sins. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10 to 16, we don't have time to turn there to read, This great high priest is both priest and final sacrifice. His death both redeems, pays the penalty to deliver it as a slave, and reconciles. It takes takes us who are slaves of sin, living under the fear of death, second death, separation from God. He redeems us from that, and he brings us to the Father, so that we are now the children of God, not simply citizens of the kingdom. And finally, verse 18, intercession. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He understands. Have you ever felt lonely? Abandoned by all and forgotten? Have you ever weep over the death of a loved one? Have you ever been lied about? Slandered? You ever been misunderstood by a family member? You ever face money problems? You ever fight high stress in your life? Jesus experienced it all. He fully understands. Chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 10. Because by the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Chapter 4, notice verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted just like we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy, we might find grace to help in the time of need. Chapter 5, verse 7. He wants them to understand, your Jesus understands and he cares. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers, supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It was intense for Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. It was even more intense for Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But according to Hebrews 12, 3, it was intense between the two. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding the blood. Jesus suffered so that he could be a sympathetic, understanding high priest. Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. The sin that separates you from God could not be ignored. So God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into this world to bear the punishment for the sins of others. The Lord Jesus came into this world becoming fully human and lived a perfect, sinless life. When he died on the cross, he took the punishment from God for sin. This demonstration of God's love is beyond any other demonstration of love that will ever be seen in this entire world. The great news for everyone, including Jeff Bezos, is that you do not need to invest vast wealth into a project that is seeking to provide eternal life on earth. But through a genuine repentance for your sin and turning in faith to Jesus Christ, you may have Eternal life. Eternal life is a present possession for all who trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. This relationship with God can be enjoyed both now and for eternity. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has now eternal life. Somebody... Here today needed to hear that. You needed to know that there was one that's seated at the Father's right hand that fully understands and knows and cares. And that he chose you and loved you before he created the heavens and the earth. And voluntarily came to take your place so that he could propitiate the Father on your behalf. As he's going to say in the book of Hebrews later on, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. God bless you. You're dismissed.